This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And every week I am tempted to say you're part of it just to see what you do. The last part, the and Eric part, just to see, because I know it would make you so, so angry. You would just come apart at the very beginning of the show. Hello? Yeah, Did you hang up? Did you... <laughs> Click. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I kind of think I would just um, say, uh, Brandon, we need to cut that part. Christopher blew his lines again. Okay, so this is always, you always queue up nice little pieces of TDPS backstory here at the Dinner Party Show Network. We used to do a live show. We would stream it live out over our website. And so it was live, and then we would post the podcast of the live broadcast. So sometimes when we do this show, I forget that we're not live. <laughs> and Eric's like, stop, stop rustling the papers. We can just cut it later. It's not a big deal. And I'm like, no. But in my head, we're still doing a live show. I, it's, a, it's a hard habit to break. And I think it's a good one to be in because for the most part, this might as well be live. I mean, there, there's yeah. that, that happens occasionally, but we really do sort of what you hear is what we said. There's not a lot of Franken biting it together for the mm-hmm. most part. So... It's us, warts and all. That, that's yeah. going to be the new name for Christopher and Eric, warts and all. TDPS <laughs> presents. Yeah, no, that would be icky. Um, okay. It didn't test well, but that was very much our original thought. Um, white supremacist week continues here on the dinner party show. <laughs> Work. I'm sorry to be so glib, but a little gallows humor as we bring you another installment well, of Christopher and Eric's domestic, True Crime TV Club. Domestic terrorism yes. continues to be a topic of interest to us. Um, mm-hmm. Also, we're going out of order because the next episode, depending on when you listen to it, but in real time, falls exactly in between Christopher and my birthday. And we are, you know, birthday queens, or I am. Um mm-hmm. Christopher certainly is. So we're we wanted to do something that was more um, festive, more festive for our birthday for also, our birthday episodes. And our birthday is also the one year anniversary of the shutdowns for coronavirus here in California. Where Actually, we record. my birthday is the one year anniversary. Your birthday, we went to lunch at La Petite <laughs> uh, at La Petitfour. My birthday. <laughs> Um, the world closed. You were canceled. Your birthday was canceled by right. the coronavirus. So I'm yes. still actually a year younger than no, you. No, I don't think that's how that's going to work. A year yeah. younger than me. <laughs> Whoa, that's some no. wormhole math we did there, that's, Eric that's a, No, 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 no. I meant like I didn't. Got, you got a year older, and I didn't because I didn't get a birthday. So yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So this year, neither of us get a year older because we're still locked down. But it is, yes. So we also, our festivities are going to have to be um, quarantine-informed, but infused. Quarantine-infused. 
Um, and at the end of this episode, we'll tell you more what that episode is about. Um, but maybe for now, if we maybe. get around to it, if we feel like it, and there's any time left after um, the 72 page uh, document that we have to present to you at the okay, time. Okay. Okay. Listen, listen. We had a lot of meetings, and by a lot, I mean one. Lenda. And I, I wanted to talk to Eric about the, the notes that I put together for these episodes of True Crime TV Club because I felt there had been some comments off mic, if you will, about how Christopher once again they were. tries to head off the prospect of me having comments, which is actually why he asked me to do a podcast with him in the first place. But I was also starting to feel like the podcasts were maybe becoming turning into me reading and then Eric making his comments. And so we had. I was explaining to him what I thought my problems were with the, my notes taking process, and Eric misunderstood and thought we had gotten a lot of angry Facebook comments about the structure <laughs> of our episodes, and started going off in that direction. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa! Nobody's complaining except for me, which is usually the story around here. Nobody's complaining except for cranky Chris, as I'm called. Yeah. Most of the terrible things that happened in Chris's life. Um What's that Mark Twain quote? Most of the never happened that, to me. Most of the most terrible, of the terrible things, things in my in life never, never yeah. happened to didn't actually happen to me. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Anyway, this is pretty terrible, and this did happen. What we're going to talk about today? Not to us necessarily, although we're part of this country, so I think it did yeah. happen to all of us. It is. We really were both beautiful. This was an interesting one for me, Christopher. I had a really unexpected reaction to this i I, let's go ahead and get into it but we'll get around to let me do the disclaimers first uh this is true crime tv club we serve up a documentary or a tv special for you based on an actual crime it is absolutely not a requirement that you have watched it if you do want to watch it before we talk about it we're going to tell you what we're talking about and that is an episode of the pbs series american experience oklahoma city On your streamer of choice, these are all listed as individual documentary films. There is no series listing for American Experience. So search for Oklahoma City. That's the title of the documentary, and it is from the American Experience brand. This the subject is obviously the bombing of the Mura Federal Building in Oklahoma City on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five. Mura, Mura, is that how you say it? Mura, Mura. I think so. Yeah, and also I will say if you are on the Amazon Fire at least, you have to type in Oklahoma City because if you just ask for it, it doesn't seem to know that it's there. Mhm. Okay. But it it's the first choice when you type it in. Okay. So that's all the that's all the um introductory prefatory. Yeah. So watch, anyway. don't watch. We're going to go spoiler alert. We're now going to tell you everything in the film. Yeah, we're going to tell you everything in the film, and we're going to open by telling you that the film has what I would call alternate timelines. We begin with the bombing, and then we flash back and explore two um, criminal events, terrorist acts in recent history, which the filmmakers clearly believe um, motivated Timothy McVeigh, who if you don't know if the Oklahoma City bomber is Timothy McVeigh, that's not a, really a major spoiler, that's kind of common knowledge. But we flash back and forth between the unfolding of the bombing in 1995 and these events in the more recent past, which they believe inspired McVeigh uh, and uh, a movement that he considered himself to be somewhat a part of in general. So we open on April 19th, 1995, 9.05 a.m. It's a black screen. We're hearing the droning 
of what is clearly a very boring and routine city meeting of some sort. I have sort. to I, say, this may be the most powerful moment in the whole thing. It I, was, I yeah. had never heard this before, and it really flattened me. You're, it's like it's just like a recording that somebody's making, probably mm-hmm. the stenographer is making, of some proceeding at some committee hearing or something. Yes, right. Blah, 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 this date, that state, when suddenly... And, an explosion that will knock your teeth out. It's just, I ins- mean, yeah, unbelievable. unbelievable. I, it's the first time I'd ever heard it. Yeah. There are a lot of interview subjects in this documentary, and we're going to have trouble naming them all individually. We're going to highlight the ones who are the most sort of consistent and were the most sort of central, I think, to the uh, bombing itself. Jerry Flowers is a police inspector from Oklahoma City. Uh, who appears in a handlebar mustache with a big cowboy hat. He was one of the first police on scene. Uh, We're introduced to two different parents. One is Helena Garrett. She is a black woman and the mother of a child who was in the daycare at the Murrah Federal Building that morning. And we're introduced to another set of parents, Claudia Denny and Jim Denny, the mother and father, uh, two white parents of a child who was in the daycare center that morning as well. And so the beginning of the documentary shows you the bombed out facade of the building. It gives you these sort of um, not jagged quotes, but sort of uh, suggestive quotes of what people were encountering as they showed up. And then black screen, we uh, go to the first part of the documentary, which is labeled The Spark. Okay. And so the documentary is segmented in that way. We'll have The Spark and then we'll have subsequent titles to deal with. We're taken to northern Idaho in the 1980s, and we're told that this was a time when extremist groups were finding a sanctuary in this rather isolated part of the country. The Aryan nations had established a compound in Hayden Lake. Their founder was a man named Richard Butler. Uh, One of the commentators who was interviewed during this period is a writer named Jess Walter, who's actually a pretty well-known literary novelist. You might have heard of him if you are a book, a bookworm. Um... Uh, Around this time, a gentleman named Robert Matthews showed up at the Aryan Nations compound. This was the early 80s. He believed that the government was run by satanic Jews who had to be destroyed. That sounds familiar to anyone who is familiar with a recent popular conspiracy theory that says Satan worshippers are trying to destroy America. And that Jews are focusing laser beams on California to burn down the forest for fun and profit. Yeah, and that would be a current member of Congress who believes that yes. theory. Yes, yes. yes. Um, Matthews has discovered a book called The Turner Diaries. Learn that name if you want to be familiar with this story. It was written by a racist named William Pierce. Uh, in it, it describes a group that calls itself The Order. Uh, or no, excuse me. There is a terrorist cell in it called The Order. And Robert Matthews decides he's going to start a group called The Order. And they begin committing a series of criminal acts that's designed to um, acquire funds. They start robbing cars. Cover story. Right. They assassinate a well-known Jewish radio broadcaster in uh, Denver, Colorado, named Alan Berg, who was well-known for um, going after these white supremacists and separatists and uh, indicting them on his radio show. Yeah, and it was also the basis for a movie called Talk Radio, which I believe was released in the 80s. Yeah, Alan Berg Mm. was the inspiration for that. Um, The group led by Bob Matthews, The Order, tries to rob a Brinks armored truck. 
During the commission of this robbery, Bob Matthews drops his pistol, and this allows the FBI to trace his group to a house on Whidbey Island in Washington State. I believe that's just off the coast of Seattle, kind of in, all, in Puget Sound, but I'm not exactly sure. I don't actually know. Yeah. A standoff they weren't very clear, and this didn't last very long. They didn't spend a lot of time on this particular segment. So Right. A standoff ensues. Um, Bob Matthews will not surrender. Uh, the entire thing ends in a fiery explosion, and he dies. See what I mean? And then the end of Bob Matthews. Right. And that this is all part of what they're, the documentary filmmakers are calling the spark that lit the bomb at Oklahoma City. Another visitor to the Aryan Nations compound was a man named Randy Weaver. And he uh, was a self-described white separatist who moved his family to, and this is a name of a place and a location that will be familiar to many of you, Ruby Ridge. This was also in the northern Idaho area. They wanted to live as Old Testament Christians. Um, Because of the Bob Matthews episode, the FBI had placed the Aryan Nations compound under surveillance. And so Randy came to their attention as he was visiting. There was an undercover agent um, in the compound who made an introduction with Randy and basically convinced him to make some sawed-off shotguns and then tried to arrest him over it. This undercover agent was working with the ATF, which stands for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Because apparently living as um, an Old Testament Christian doesn't pay very well, and he was looking for work. So he... So the, in, in keeping with the traditions of Old Testament Christians, he took a job smithing some guns, cutting the, um, the barrels off of them, because that's, you know, that's what the old-timey um, Old Testament Christians were up to, even though Christians are in the New Testament. Yeah, there's that old beautiful spiritual soft, that shotgun that we're all familiar with. Um, right. so, so they try to flip him, and he won't flip, and he also fails to appear in court. And so his case is assigned to the U.S. Marshals Service. Um, <clears throat> the marshals stake out his property, uh, place him under constant surveillance. They see the amount of guns that are being stored there. The guy appears to be stockpiling weapons. They eventually storm the property. In the process, Randy's 14-year-old child is killed, and so is a federal marshal. And then, lo and behold, another standoff ensues, similar to the well, one on the Well, did they storm Island. the property, or did they go to make the arrest and they started firing on them? I thought they stormed the property, but maybe I missed the... I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm unclear at this point because, again, we didn't spend as much time on this particular one. But I'm not... But that sounds like the, the marshals went in shooting, and I think that the marshals went in to, to do the arrest and... My impression was that the marshals put the uh, compound under camera surveillance, and when they saw the amount of weaponry on the property, they realized a door knock wasn't going to was going to result in a firefight. So they went in, not necessarily shooting, but ready to arrest. But I may be mistaken because there are, <laughs> there were two different standoffs here that we had to. And it's worth noting that the marshal service was who was making this call on um, Mr. Weaver because he skipped 
because he didn't show up for court. They were not actually the arresting. The ATF is who actually arrested him initially and set up on charges. So they were not as aware of who he was mm-hmm. or where they were going other than, you know, the obvious. I'm sure they had salient facts, but they were not the arresting. They were the ones who were there to get him for skipping bail or uh, a skip trace. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors, and you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So in the wake of Randy's 14-year-old child and a federal marshal being killed, a standoff ensues. At this point, snipers have surrounded the property. A moment comes when Randy Weaver, his friend Kevin Harris, who's been there for the duration, and Sarah Weaver go to check on the body of young Sam, who was shot earlier. They're fired upon. Randy is hit in the shoulder before they manage to duck back inside the house. Another shot goes through the door and hits his wife, Vicki Weaver, in the face and kills her. Eleven days later, the standoff ends. Randy is arrested, but Ruby Ridge becomes a calling card, a sort of example among the radical right uh, for the excesses and abuse of government. And guns and religion become the twin pillars of the white supremacist movement because the feeling of people who sympathize with Randy is that these were the only reasons he was targeted. I'm putting in air quotes. And I see you getting ready to talk, Eric well, Shokwin. It is. This is the beginning of my reaction to this process. Like a lot of what we're getting, a lot of what this certainly with the beginning here, but right along, a lot of what we're getting is a narrative that's being formulated by and presented to us by the people making the documentary. I am Mm -hmm. certainly not a fan of domestic terrorism or white supremacists or any of this, and I, I am not saying they're being mischaracterized or maligned or anything. Like, if you want somebody to say horrible stuff about those people... Just give me a call. I'll be happy to. Um, <laughs> but it it seems to me we begin at this point to build a narrative that supports something that they want to say rather than something that is just specifically an exploration of the facts as they present themselves. And this is a good example. Like, mm-hmm. at this point, going forward, the two pillars of their movement were this and this. It's like... But they're not the ones saying it. It's the narrators. Mm, so I'm like, mm-hmm. this is this is starting in down direction. I, I didn't dislike this process, but I wound up at a very different place than they did because I went through this listening to the facts and mm-hmm. not the narrative. Okay. Well, I will be excited to see what you where you arrived um, because before we get there, we're going to now flash back to Oklahoma City and the site of the bombing, and we're given a sort of gruesome tour uh, 
of all the horrors that awaited the first responders when they Jesus. reached the building. Just um, brutal. Uh, we're, we're told a story uh, by a surgeon named Dr. Andrew Sullivan who had to perform an amputation of a woman who was uh, trapped in the wreckage. He had to use his own pocket knife to do it because he tore through all of his saw blades. I mean, this was just awful. And he had to crawl into this tiny space underneath the collapsed building. So he was in as much danger as the woman was. Mm-hmm of the building falling on him in order to perform this gruesome surgery. That was the only way that they could free her because her leg was um, trapped under a beam, which if they moved the beam at all would have killed everybody there. Right. I mean, it was just horrific. I think the most chilling description that were given is by the police inspector that I mentioned earlier, who said that when you entered the wreckage and you looked above you, you saw these giant red circles of coagulated blood and you realized that was where someone on a floor above had been crushed after the bombing as the floors collapsed. It was just, it's just, it's a, it's horrible. It's horrifying. Um, yeah, it's a hellscape. There is also a false alarm. They find a bomb, which they think is a secondary device, but it turns out it was something that was used for testing in some sort of federal. There were a lot of different federal offices. It was a federal building, building and yeah. the ATF was there, and this was like a sample, you know, a dummy bomb that they used for demonstrations. In and But they didn't know that when they found it. They thought it was another bomb. And so when the call goes out, people who were tending to the trapped suddenly have to abandon them and start running. They were ultimately able to return shortly thereafter, but I mean, to compound the horror with horror. But the guy performing the amputation never moved. He went right on operating on the woman to free her, even though they were being told there was a bomb in the building that could go off and kill them all. Yeah. There were some real heroes here. There really were. Um, 500 investigators in Oklahoma City are assigned to the case. The assumption right away is that this is Middle Eastern terrorism, but there's no claim of responsibility. Uh, at this point, we're introduced through interviews to a journalist named Lee Hancock, who I believe was Texas-based, although that was never entirely clear to me. But she says she's in their, her room with her colleagues, and they're talking about this horrible story, the bombing. What's the significance of this date? Like, who would pick this date? And then it immediately washed over all of them that this was, in fact, the anniversary of the raid on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. Well, which I was think another, the conclusion of the raid. The conclusion of the raid, because that is an event which we then go on to explore, which went on for something like 40 days. That was a 40-day standoff. Yeah, like the flood. Yeah. So we then, as we did with Ruby Ridge... <laughs> it wasn't an actual flood. It was the flood, in the Noah's flood in the Bible. I, I don't think that they've quite substantiated that one yet. Yeah. Um, so as we did with Ruby Ridge, we then go back in time. This is to 1992, I believe. So two to three years before the bombing in Oklahoma city. And we are introduced to the branch Davidians who are an offshoot of the seventh day Adventist church that set up a community in Mount Carmel, Texas. In May of 1992, the local sheriff's department there gets a tip from a UPS truck driver who basically says, I was delivering some boxes to this compound occupied by the Branch Davidians, and one of them fell apart, and pineapple grenade holes fell out. This immediately, given that grenade shipments are not that common, draws the attention of the alcohol Bureau of Alco- Alcohol to Bureau... 
the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, otherwise known as the ATF. Jesus Christ, it was like a test. Um, they soon do, they begin an investigation and they determine that the members of the Branch Davidians at the compound are illegally converting automatic weapons. So an ATF team leader is assigned. His name is Bill Buford. Um, this is the part where it was like, wow, this guy became the least popular man in all of Texas. So local law enforcement is made aware that this raid is that the ATF is going to conduct some sort of raid on the compound. The local some uh, I, shit. I'm looking over my notes. So it was like one somebody was walking towards the compound. They were I think they were a reporter. Or they were driving towards it, or they were there looking was a, for it. Word leaked that they were yeah. go, there was going to be a raid. Reporters came to the vicinity, which was a pretty small town, right? Um, to to cover the raid that they had rumors that they were going, and they began asking for uh, the location and they asked one of the branch Davidians, Jesus Christ. And he said, yeah, there's going to be a big raid there today and we're trying to find it. And so, wow. The guy went back to their stronghold and told them they were coming. So they had plenty of time to arm themselves to the teeth because they were actually manufacturing automatic weapons Mm -hmm. or causing them to come into existence. And, uh, I guess something, some kind of something with grenades. I'm not I, sure what. It sounds but like yeah. they were armed to the gills. So the leader, but they of the were branch, ready. The leader of the Branch Davidians. I should probably should have said this sooner. And this is a name known to history. David Koresh is his man. Is his name? Who was me. a rapist and child molester? He was. Who used the cover of religion to um, justify his hideous behavior and abuse of young women? Mm-hmm. Uh, I like how Eric always breaks it down. Um, So he gets the word. They all begin preparing for the arrival of the ATF. And so as soon as the ATF gets there, a firefight ensues. It lasts for two and a half hours. Four ATF agents are killed. Inside, five Branch Davidians are killed. And Koresh is wounded. Uh, I believe Bill Buford, the ATF team leader who we were introduced, who was interviewed, is wrapped in a blanket and placed on the hood of a truck. And driven slowly away because I guess they couldn't get an ambulance there or it would have been too dangerous. Right, um, they don't want to get the ambulance people shot. Now included among the interview subjects is a woman named Kat Schroeder who was who was identified as a former Branch Davidian who was present that day. Uh, other FBI agents, FBI negotiators who participated because what ensues is a massive prolonged standoff that eventually begins to earn the ire of the media and the locals because they killed four ATF agents. Um, So the pressure is mounting on the FBI, who's now involved, as well as the ATF, to do something about these people who opened fire um, on federal agents. So they hatch a deal with David Koresh where they say, "Okay, we will allow you to make a recording that we will broadcast to the world if you agree to let all of the children that you have inside of your compound go. So he makes his recording. They take his recording. I didn't remember. Did they broadcast his reporting or not? Or did it not get to that point? I don't know. I guess so. I assume that they did, but that's the way it was portrayed in this. I don't actually remember the course of events because it was such a horrifying thing. That wasn't my primary focus. Okay. But the point is Koresh reneges on his deal. He says he got a message from God telling him that he shouldn't give in. And boy, is the FBI pissed. They cut the power. 
They blast the compound with constant flashes of light. They play really loud music on speakers to drive them crazy. They bring in tanks and drive them. And the over music his they cars. chose is Nancy Sinatra's Nancy "These Boots Are Made for Walking," one of my all-time favorite songs. It's like that. Good for you. Good yeah. for you. So while all this is going down, because it's taking so goddamn long. There are crowds assembling. There are people coming from all over to sort of see the compound from a distance. They're obviously not allowed to get close to it. But one of these people is a 24-year-old Army veteran named Timothy McVeigh. He's described as being pro-gun, anti-government. He shows up with a bunch of pro-gun, anti-government bumper stickers, which he begins selling off the hood of his car. He's from a town in uh, New York State called Pendleton, which is close to Buffalo and is described as a mostly white suburb. He was bullied in high school. His passion for guns leads him to the army, where he goes to Iraq for the first Gulf War, kills an Iraqi soldier with a long sniper shot, and supposedly because of this experience, loses faith in the war and in the government. Again, we're back to the narrative that is being presented rather than the facts, because what actually happens is he re-ups and goes to ranger school in the army. He's so disillusioned with the army and with their mission that he re-ups and goes to ranger school where he washes out. Because he's not in good enough shape physically. Right. Right. I think is a a more likely sign of bitterness towards the government than the other thing. But whatever. He becomes a disaffected wanderer visiting gun shows throughout the West. Okay, so we're now, we go back to the compound, or we close in on the compound because we've not left the compound. McVeigh visited. Kat Schroeder, the Branch Davidian who's being interviewed, says that Koresh makes the decision to kick everyone out of the compound who he says won't help the group to ascend. And it sounds like that ultimately means he's kicking out all the people who were not his blood relations, the children that he did not father are all getting the boot from the along with some other people who don't look actually who look sort of older and not like nubile young women that he would want to claim as wives. Right. He keeps all the women that he's um, that he's been molesting and yeah. abusing and the young women and the children that he's fathered by them. Twenty five of them. Yeah. He's fathered. He's such a great guy. Such a wonderful Christian. He's a real man of God. So the FBI goes to Janet Reno, who is the head of the Forgive me for getting this wrong. She's the head of the Justice Department, or she's she's not the head of the FBI, right? <laughs> yeah, no, she's the Attorney General. She's the Attorney General. Okay, I'm usually smarter than this, but this is a really dense documentary, and I need you to forgive me. Okay, so... <laughs> um, it's really okay. She says, um, okay, you can take armored vehicles, and you can knock holes in the walls of the building and spread tear gas. No, that I'm sorry. That's what the FBI initially wants to do. And she says, no, you can't do that. That's way too much. That's overkill. So the FBI is like, okay, we got to get Janet on board. How do we do this? So they go and they find the evidence of what you have been describing, which is the testimony of former Davidians that there was rampant child sexual abuse happening. They have videotapes of him being interviewed. This is Koresh, I mean, with his young uh-huh. teenage wives and the children that he sired by them. And so Janet says, okay, <laughs> I've seen I'm down what with I need that. To see. Yeah, he's a terrible guy. Yeah, and he's lied to us and gone back on every deal and is in no way moving towards doing anything he's agreed to do and is heavily armed, has killed four agents, and has been holed up in that place for 40 days now. Yes. So uh, 
basically during the armored truck raid that ensues, and again, the goal is to punch holes in the walls so that they can shoot tear gas in, not try to injure anybody, but get everybody out. Right. Um, Koresh instructs his followers to set fire to the place. And they know this because they To put they on have, their gas masks. Yeah. And to spread fuel, right? They also and later to spread find, fuel all over the building. Yeah. So surveillance audio of him saying, spread the fuel, put on your gas masks. Um, and it is a fiery conflagration that was watched live on television. And it is, um, it is a culture searing event. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So, and I have a sense that Eric may want to pop in on this too the documentary filmmakers then go okay the compound burned um only nine adults come out koresh and many others are none of the nine adults were carrying a child none of the nine adults were carrying a child they did come out and escaped and surrendered to the authorities everyone else and this is the part that really upsets me the most including the 25 children die in the fire that the Branch Davidians set to their own compound. Mm -hmm. A few months later, the Brady Bill passes. And this is a a bill that includes a ban on assault rifles, as well as probably one of the most significant pieces of, uh, how should we phrase it? Not gun rights legislation, but gun control legislation in the past few decades. President Clinton, Bill Clinton was president at the time. It was a signature event. The filmmakers tell us that this enraged Timothy McVeigh further. But and I, by- would, I would put out that it is a gun rights event because we all have the right not to be killed by a gun. <laughs> right. And so I think gun control is actually a gun rights yes. um, issue. Right. It is, it is an issue of how our rights relate to somebody else firing a gun right. at it's us. It's not for just no for the owners of the guns. It's for the non-owners of the guns have rights, too. Yeah. So the filmmakers tell us that by the end of 1993, a huge underground of armed white supremacist militias were gathering all over the country in response to what was perceived as these twin threats of they're coming to take your guns and they hate Christians. Okay. So around this time. Which is, again, the scenario that's being developed by the, uh, the documentarians more than Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh, however, in this time, is recruiting two army buddies to help him build a truck bomb, and their names are Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier. Together, they buy tons of ammonium nitrate, which is essentially fertilizer. They break into a storage shed at a quarry and steal something called explosive Tovec sausages, which will add power to the bomb. They spend months assembling the bomb. They add in 55-gallon drums of nitromethane racing fuel. They debate which location to target, and they ultimately pick the Mur- Murrah Federal Building. Did I say it right? Murrah? I think so. That's yeah. what I'm going with, Alfred Murrah. Murrah. 
Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City because the ATF has an office in the building along with a bunch of other departments of the federal government. And a child care center. And a daycare center. And the filmmakers tell us that they are unclear as to whether or not McVeigh knew that there was a daycare center in the building, which is like, okay. Um, Though they also said that they don't think it would have made any difference to his decision. Because uh, Michael Fortier is starting to get cold feet and McVeigh says to him, there has to be a body count. That's a direct quote. Yes. So uh, Fortier basically drops out, but Terry Nichols stays on board with the plan, and he and Nichols drive from Kansas to Oklahoma City, and McVeigh stashes what is described as a $300 getaway car there. He leaves a little sign in the window saying, not abandoned, please don't tow, which should give you a sense of what, what a state of disrepair the car was in. And I mean... the Terry and uh, McVeigh and Nichols, excuse me, drive back to Kansas where McVeigh rents a rider truck in Junction City. He drives the truck out to a place called Geary Lake State Park, and that is where he assembles the bomb with Nichols' assistance. And this is when, according to Nichols, he decides to bow out, that he can't do it. McVeigh threatens to kill him and his family, but somehow Nichols gets away with saying that he won't join him on the morning of the bombing, and they say goodbye. (laughs) But he helps him assemble the bomb. But he helps him assemble the bomb. McVeigh drives south into Oklahoma City. And I think McVeigh corroborated it. I think McVeigh said that he he did it under duress. He did it under duress. That he helped him assemble the the bomb after. I think McVeigh owned that. Okay. McVeigh drives south into Oklahoma City. He parks the truck in front of the federal building. He gets out. He walks away. We've already gotten a gruesome tour of what happened next. The bomb detonated in front of the building. The destruction was terrible. The death toll was staggering. The investigation swings into immediate action and they're able to trace the rider truck uh, to a body shop in in Junction City, Kansas, where he rented it. And they're able to do this because they find the rear axle of the truck within hours of the blast. And there is a confidential vehicle identification number printed on that piece of equipment, which allows them to trace it. Which the agent still remembered... By memory. Yeah. All those years later when they were making the special, I was kind of blown away by that. But it gave you some sense of how what, how impactful this event was. This was the, prior to 9-11, this was the worst was terrorist a, attack that it was ever happened. Yeah, in, I remember it. I remember countries. being in a cab in New York City on a school trip and we were all taking cabs. And I remember hearing it being talked about on the radio in the background and thinking that can't be real. That must be a commercial for a movie. They were talking about the destruction, and what I thought, this this didn't really happen. Yeah. They go to the Junction City body shop that rented the rider truck. They have witnesses who say, we saw two guys come in here. Uh, one of the guys, they do composite sketches. He matches McVeigh's description. There's some business with the other sketch, which is sort of a side note, not that interesting, so I'm going to skip over it in the interest of time. Um The guy matching uh, McVeigh's description used a South Dakota driver's license with an assumed name. But one of the investigators said, someone around here must have seen this rider truck. And so he starts visiting local motels. And he finds, sure enough, he finds a motel where somebody saw, you know, there was a recent guest who had a rider truck who matched the description. And for some reason, and I think this is one of those things that isn't really well examined either, McVeigh slipped up and used his real identity when he did the room. Um, so 
They immediately begin searching for him, and they find out that he has already been arrested for driving in a car that with no license plate. car. Yeah. Um, and so they go to where he is being held in jail by people who don't know what he's done other than he was driving a car and he was carrying a gun, right? That's why the cop arrested yeah, him. Yeah, that's how he got arrested. Yeah. And the two he federal agents- He had no agents, ID and he had an unlicensed weapon on him. Right. And the two federal agents track him down in jail and they say, do you know why we're here? And he says, you're here because of the bombing. He immediately cops to it. Uh, they find Terry Nichols soon after. He cops to it. McVeigh's trial begins on April 24th, 1997. Michael Fortier testifies against him and the testimony is described as devastating to McVeigh's case. On June 11th, 2001, McVeigh is executed by lethal injection. He died without expressing a single word of regret. All told, 168 people were killed, including 19 children. Terry Nichols was found guilty of 161 counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years in prison. And in 2016, he was released and placed in the Federal Witness Protection Program. Yes, I did write that as 2016. 2016. Yes, yes that's absolutely. really, it was a long wait. Yeah. Um, okay, so that that wraps up what we saw on screen, and now it's time for for the narrative that we were given versus the narrative that Eric heard based on the facts. Because I'm I'm dying to hear what this is. Well, I the thing that really sort of struck me was they were the ones who like who really made it all about how he was part of the white supremacy movement. And once again, you know, like they there's plenty to answer for from that particular crowd. Waco was not about white supremacy. Um, Weaver at Ruby Ridge was only tangentially connected to the Aryan Brotherhood movement in Idaho, though, sort of. Um, so they were, but they were building this case towards saying that this is what inspired um, Timothy McVeigh, that he was a furtherance of that particular notion. And, what I heard was the description of a psychopathic serial killer mm -hmm. who just killed all of his victims at the same time. Mm -hmm. The people who helped him assemble the bomb were not white supremacists. Mm -hmm. He read the literature, and I think as any good psychopath and ser potential serial killer, um, he was attracted to and inspired by other people using similar methods of domestic, domestic terrorism as the means of implementing their serial killership. But he didn't give them really any credit, and he did not um, really espouse a lot of their beliefs other than him seeing that he was avenging himself against the government who washed him out of um, ranger school though he didn't say that, you know, and that the attacks on these other, it just seemed like a good pretext for him to do what he did, but he didn't express any regret. He made sure that he got credit for it. He kind of was a martyr to it and he wanted to be famous for the doing of it and maybe for the, but the other stuff was all conjecture on the part of the journalists, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily see a good case for. I didn't either. Like, and I, there were two biographers of McVeigh in there as interview subjects later. And I thought we were absolute, it's them that we're really talking about. It's their narrative version of McVeigh's life. And I think as with, the interviews that happened with serial killers, there were a lot of interviews with McVeigh, which I will say not a lot of were included in this documentary. 
No. Where he is going to make an attempt to try to shape his story. This is why I did it. And you're right. I didn't get a sense that there was sort of a neutral, objective voice on who this guy was. And like you're saying, I'm not letting him off the hook at all. But I think you need to know where the evil's coming from if you're going to protect yourself from it. And this was coming from a different evil camp, a different sort of... And serial killers frequently have some sort of axe to grind. Right. You know, they're getting even with their mothers, so they kill women who look like her. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, or they're getting even with women for turning them down, so they go after beautiful prostitutes or whatever. Like, I think there's frequently some kind of motivation behind them, but it doesn't make them any less serial killers. I just did not see this man as somebody who was living out some greater um, story. There was no manifesto. There was no claim for anything. He just said, you know, the government is right. um, bullying people and I I, I want to get and government people and government agencies. That's, that's as yes. much motivation as any other serial killer as I've ever heard. And that's the road they didn't go down very far, but which they started down, which is he was badly bullied in high school. He was called Noodle because he was so thin and that his love of guns began right then because guns empowered him physically in his mind. And again... And he was washed out of the Rangers because of his physical inadequacy. Right. Which I think is why he came for the government. I don't think it had anything to do... I think he liked their methods. He met them at the gun shows. He... You know, thought, okay, domestic terrorism, that's a great way to lash back at um, Mm -hmm. federal government. But I think it was personal. I think he was a psychopath. Never any real regret. Did you do you remember anything about the Gore Vidal moment that happened around this case? It's sort of been like brushed from history. Gore Vidal struck up a correspondence. And if you don't know who Gore Vidal is, he was considered a seminal American writer, one of the first openly gay writers. But in his later years, he struck up a correspondence with Timothy McVeigh from prison, and he began, Gore did, began to give a series of interviews about how he felt that some of Timothy McVeigh's ideas about the government merited discussion. And he went on Good Morning America, and they cut his mic. Charles Gibson ended the interview because it was seen as giving way too much credence to the philosophy of a, of a terrorist and a serial killer. And Vanity Fair wrote a piece about it at the time. And I don't recall anybody bringing it up around the time of Gore Vidal's death, but it was... Do not remember it that. Was, that. It was a moment. Shocking. It was a moment in the culture. It was, you know... So little Gore was talking in that interview. I don't huh? know. Well, I have to say, you know, horrible man that he was, Timothy McVeigh was not hard to look at. So Mm -hmm. I can totally see Gore being swept up in the charms of, they said some, they said similar things about, um, uh, uh, Truman Capote when he was doing, um, that he became enamored of that there was, and there was some mutual, that, that, that it went both ways, that some of the reasons that they spoke to him as candidly as they did, um, at least one of them was because they were enamored of, of Truman as well. Mm-hmm. So, Dangerous anyway, business. I, Dangerous I business. That's a side note. Uh, but I, I think that's Clarice important. ran away with Dr. Hannibal. And Jodie Foster refused to do that movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
but apparently um, Gore Vidal would have. I, I don't know. And honestly, like check my notes on Gore Vidal because I wasn't prepared to talk about it. I just remembered it as we were talking about it. And I, there may be little I pieces of the story that, story. that I'm missing. I but out. yeah, it, it, it was a moment. They, they, he accused Charles Gibson of Good Morning America of cutting his mic and ending the interview before he could respond. He lived in Italy at the time. And so it was a satellite interview, I think, of some sort. Um, and they, yeah. Um, anyway, wow. yeah, this is, um, this was a horrible moment in American history, but I think part of why we, we picked it was we, we just suffered a raid, uh, a raid, excuse me, on our Capitol building, an armed insurrection, you know, which we touched on some in our previous episode. Yeah, we are dealing with a, a, a and and the FBI has said that um, we, that they're on high alert for domestic terrorism. The greatest threat to our country right now is from within. That domestic terrorism is a huge problem, and it has been inspired recently by events. Let's leave it at that. Um, mm-hmm. And has manifested itself and reared its ugly head. So I, I think it's a very real sort of prospect, and and something that. You know, like it's true crime. If you ask me, like mm-hmm. I, you know, there's nothing more criminal than this sort of behavior than something as heinous as this. I think this was a serial killer using the cover of domestic terrorism as his, um, as his means and method of execution. But the fact that there's something that exists that a serial killer could use as cover, um is pretty much an indictment of the movement itself. Oh, like God. That. I mean, it's definitely not about one being better than the other. I think the thing that right. also supports your theory is that he had no interest in dying. He wasn't a suicide bomber. He ran. No. Ran. He literally ran once he was out of view so that he could get away. And that says something about wanting to be alive to derive some sort of pleasure from the pain that he had caused. And and, and there's something so and disgusting. From the that he got. Exactly. There's something so disgusting about the smug interviews and maybe that's why they didn't include many of them in the documentary that all of these apprehended serial killers give from prison where they sort of orate and hold forth and i'm like why are you giving this guy a platform you know to 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 control his own narrative what insight are you getting from the source of the problem you know like give him an mri you know like examine the 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 neuro structures of his brain don't i don't want to hear his version you know jesus christ anyway all right uh, yeah very much it, it was very it, that just seemed and i was not expecting that what I, were you like, expecting part of the reason i suggested this because i wanted to talk about domestic terrorism and i mm-hmm. i had always seen him as because it's been the narrative that's been constructed around him was that he was a part of this movement and very much a domestic terrorist in in showing up and when I watched this, I was like, that's not what I'm seeing. I, I see that you're saying that, but I don't see that in him. I don't see it in his actions, and I don't see it in the way that he carried it out or the way that it carried forward. And honestly, I also don't see the uh, domestic terrorism movement having adopted him as much of a, a cause celeb, a martyr or anything else. He was. They really don't seem to be taking him on as their own either. Uh, in our last episode, it sort of turned into a discussion of domestic terrorism because we, we tackled a special where we didn't realize it was going to cover multiple cases and we were more interested in the first one, but the later one, the story of Glenn Miller, who was an organized paramilitary neo-Nazi, that was right. really, and that can be, check out our previous episode, episode 66, if you want to hear that conversation, because that is what a domestic terrorism movement looks like 
like stockpiling weapons, manifestos, plans. He put out a point system for assassinations, told his followers, you get this many points if you assassinate this official, this many. You're right. And none of that is there with McVeigh. He, he wanted to no. be known for this mass act of murder himself and to go down it in was, history for it. And to really take credit, he even went to pains to make sure that some of his co-conspirators had legal cover from him. Yeah. That he was helped him put the bomb together, but only under duress. He still got indicted for 161 counts of murder, so I don't think it helped him a lot, but he didn't get put to death like McVeigh did. He yeah. spends the rest of his life in prison. Um, the other one got 12 years and joined the Witness Protection yes. Program. I always wonder when I see that, I wonder if this is someone I know. Right? Are they working at Gelson's down the street? Right? Yeah. Have I met this guy? Have I, you know, like... I don't know. I, was, okay. uh, I guess that's silly, but that's what I always think of when they tell me somebody's in witness protection now. Next week, we're going back into the light, Carol Ann. Do you hear me? We're going back into the light. I'm telling you, it's time. <laughs> it's time. We did and them back to back Carol this Ann. time. Usually we, we have alternating true crime we're TV club. back. <laughs> it was no. No. Um, so we wanted to, we're celebrating our birthdays, which fall close together. Uh, we're not celebrating the one-year anniversary of the coronavirus shutdowns here in California because we're still no. basically shut down. So, no, not celebrating that. But we wanted to do an episode... But that, we are observing it. But we wanted to do an episode that was based around um, travel when you can't travel. And so we don't have a title for it yet, but we reached out to you on the Facebook page and we asked you for your movies and your TV shows that take you out of yourself while you stay on the sofa, that take you to another right, place. Right, because the imagination is a great... Um, is a great transportation device. I, 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 my favorite, the J.M. Barry quote, God gave us memory so we could have uh, roses in December, really sort of characterizes a lot of my choices, particularly during this year of being trapped at home. Like oh, the departures, all of the fantastic voyages I have gone on during the course of the year have been through books and TV and you know, my own imagination. But let's also say that we are fortunate to be able to be trapped at home. We haven't had to go out and work on the front lines or work in a medical facility. So God we're blessed bless in that people. regard and bless people who have done that. And I hope who you're all... up the heroes. You know, I hope you are all moved to the front of the vaccine line and, and get vaccinated soon. Um, here, here. But, but yeah, so a much lighter episode next week. Fun, frivolity, Eric's usual charm. Uh, all that good stuff. I'll be cranky and overly <laughs> reliant on the my notes. Eye. I'll be cranky and overly reliant on my notes and drinking the too much caffeine. mischievous smile, and Christopher will be bossing me around. And I'll be bossing you around. Eric, wrap it up, Eric. Eric, Eric, happen. wrap it up. We're out of time, Eric. Even though it's our own show, we're out of time. Even Do you have any thoughts? Even though there's nobody coming on after. Any final thoughts before we pitch it to Rachel? <laughs> The world is so full of a number of things. I am sure we shall always be as happy as kings. That's my always my final thought. Excelente. All right. Until Robert then, Louis Stevenson. Until then, and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and not been, Robert Louis Stevenson. And you've been listening to Robert Louis Stevenson uh, and Christopher Rice. This is TD. What the hell's going on? This is TDPS presents Christopher. <laughs> now say your part. And Eric. Say the thanks. Thanks for listening. You almost didn't say thanks. This is TDPS.